Will you join me there? It starts like this. It says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus with all his saints. We encounter many stories throughout the Bible of ordinary people faced with insurmountable odds whom God delivers in the end. We have stories like David and Goliath, Gideon and the Midianites, Moses and Israel against the Egyptians, and so on and so on. I could stand up here for the entire duration of my sermon tonight, listing off different stories about how God has delivered his people from insurmountable odds. But if we are not careful, we can start to believe that these are just stories, that this sort of deliverance is saved specifically for biblical characters. Well, let me remind you tonight that it, that is certainly, most certainly not the case. Consider for me this story of a World War I veteran, Leonard Knight. Leonard Knight was only 17 years old in the year 1915 when he enlisted in the British military in order to help with the war effort. Just before leaving, though, he was given a hardback cover of, or hardback cover of the New Testament by his Aunt Millie to keep with him while he was fighting in the war. Leonard would keep that book in his breast pocket close to his heart. When Leonard finally saw a battle the reality of what he was really doing started to sink in. 
bullets flying everywhere with mortar strikes following not too far behind. People were losing their lives left and right as they, fought, as they sought to fight for their respective countries. Time would start to slow down for Leonard when a single German bullet would fly across the battlefield and strike him square in the chest. Overcome by the intensity of being shot, Leonard must have thought that his life was over, but by God's grace, it wasn't. The bullet made contact with the Bible that he had placed inside of his breast pocket, stopping just some 50 pages before the back cover of the book. By the grace of God alone, Leonard was saved by God's word, literally, and which helped him survive till the end of the war. You see, God's deliverance is not reserved only for biblical characters. God has not stopped delivering his people from whatever the world throws at us. So tonight, we will be studying the very act of God delivering and being with his people as we continue on in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Our goal will be to study this passage of scripture and see that for the Christian, that there is an enemy behind suffering, that there is the joy of the Lord in the midst of suffering, and that there is the strength of the Lord in the midst of suffering. So starting in chapter two, verse 17, it says this. It says, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. We pick back up in 1 Thessalonians today with Paul continuing his defense of why he has not returned to Thessalonica to be with the church. If you'll remember, Paul was torn away very suddenly from the church because of some intense persecution after only spending a couple of weeks inside of the city. The beginning of our passage this evening sees Paul desiring to return to Thessalonica to be with the church members that he has developed a strong bond with. But there has been something hindering Paul from returning to Thessalonica, and that is Satan, just as Paul himself describes it. This leads us to the first point for this evening, which is this, that for the Christian, there is an enemy behind suffering. We see in Paul's own words that he has an overwhelming desire to return to Thessalonica and be with the people that he shared the gospel with. Paul has only been able to be with these people for a couple of weeks before he was suddenly and traumatically ripped away from them to demonstrate just how intense this separation was for Paul. Paul used a very specific Greek verb here, that is only used this one time in the Greek New Testament. That word, aporphonizo, this word has connotations of making someone an orphan. That's why I really like how the NASB and the NIV translates this specific verse with the beginning of verse 17 saying, 
But we, brothers, having been orphaned from you. Paul builds up this family metaphor that we've been discussing over the past couple of weeks. If you remember the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about how his love for the Thessalonian church was like a mother and like a father. So he uses this specific word to just show the intensity of how he felt being ripped away from this church. The connection that he shares with them was so strong, which makes his suffering all the more painful when he is separated from them. This separation, Paul credits to the work of Satan, which brings us to a very important point that we need to discuss. Now, I would be a fool if I were to not tread lightly around the topic of satanic opposition in the life of the Christian. Without caution, we end up creating false pictures in our minds of how we think about Satan, which leads us almost certainly into error. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes it in his introduction to the book, The Screwtape Letters, about our perception of demons because he says it so succinctly. So let me read from, from his introduction. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall of, in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So this evening, I would like to encourage you all to avoid these two pitfalls that can be so easily fallen into. The first pitfall that we need to be avoiding is the over-spiritualization of this world and focusing too much on the work of Satan. God is the focus of our Bible. He's the focus of scripture. Satan is not. So if we are spending too much time pay, paying too much attention to, his, to the defeated opponent, then we're running several risks. You see, if we spend too much time focusing on the devil, we may start to exaggerate his power and believe that he is way more powerful than he is. And once we start to exaggerate his power, Satan can be used as an excuse for our own sin and mistakes, which can become a way to avoid actually dealing with sin inside of our lives. The second pitfall that we need to be carefully avoiding is the under-spiritualization of this world. You see, our postmodern, scientifically-minded world wants us to avoid thinking of things spiritual altogether. But I am here this evening to tell you that there are many benefits to being aware of the enemy and his presence here in this world. If we are aware that we have an enemy, if we are aware of them, then it provides us Christians with a powerful incentive to fight our enemy. When people, are taken, when people are being taken advantage of or being persecuted or being abused, we then should try to love and take care of these people because we know that there is an enemy behind it. 
There is no happenstance when it comes to the evils occurring in this world because we know that there is an enemy behind it. We can also fight against evil with confidence knowing that the end is already written. God will triumph over all. We know that God is the one who ends up being victorious at the end. So we need to be aware of the enemy and push back against him. The world is against the Christian, but that does not mean that we are without hope inside of our lives. I believe and have seen from my experience that the pitfall that the modern church most often falls into is the under-spiritualization of everything and believing that we live almost inside of a neutral world. The temptation is to believe that before Christ, we were just okay people. We were all probably at least a little bit moral in how we lived, putting value in moralistic living and trying ourselves to be as good of people as we could be. As long as we weren't murdering people or stealing, then we were good enough, right? Then, you know, God came into our lives, gave us the Holy Spirit, and made us into good people. That that sounds about right. I can tell you that that is not the case. (laughs) Without doing so much, without doing any study into scripture, we can start to believe this lie. And we can start to believe that this lie because of what the culture around us is preaching to us. And I'll be honest, I'll be completely honest to you guys this evening and say that I even believe that for a portion of my life. But this isn't the world we are living in. Scripture tells us and paints us a much different picture. It is a lot more black and white than that. The Bible says that before Christ, we were dead in our sin and unable to know God. Adam and Eve acting as our representatives for the entire human race brought sin into this world after falling for Satan's temptation. We didn't become neutral, but became sinners, unable to commune with God as we were unclean. Satan then continues to tempt the world through sin and tempts us to replace God with something else inside of our lives. It was only through the work of Christ that we have been given the opportunity to reconcile ourselves to God. We are either redeemed through Christ and are in the light, or we, or we are separated from God and are in darkness. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral area. So tonight, I would love to encourage you guys to evaluate how you think about the enemy. Are you paying too much attention to Satan and the demonic, or are you not paying enough attention? I myself, as I've been working through this passage, have struggled to find my own biases and thinking to form a better understanding of our enemy. But I will tell you, once we are able to see which of these pitfalls we most often fall into, then we will better be able to serve the world around us and fight against the forces of evil for the glory of God. Continuing on in chapter three, verse one, it says this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother 
and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all all our distress and affliction, We have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. When Paul could no longer bear it, he decided to send Timothy, his right-hand man, down to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing in the midst of their suffering. Although Paul had very few people To help support him through his difficult ministry, he decided to send Timothy ahead, knowing that the church would benefit more from his teachings, especially in the midst of suffering. Paul was desperate to find out about the church and find out about their health, because learning that they were destined to experience suffering and actually experience suffering are two very different things. When Timothy had returned to Paul, he brought to the apostle an overwhelmingly positive report of the health of the church. The Christians there were not distrustful or angry with Paul who had to leave suddenly as those who, would have, as those who were opposing the gospel would have wanted them to believe. Uh, instead, they remembered their time with Paul dearly and were desiring for him to return to the church just as much as Paul was desiring to be back. This comforts Paul immensely, knowing that the church that he labored for, both physically and emotionally, were rooted in Christ and not moved when facing their affliction. What is incredible about this encouragement is that it's going both ways. The Thessalonians were encouraged by Timothy's visit and Paul was encouraged by their faith. This brings us to the second point that I would like to discuss this evening, and that is this. For the Christian, there is joy, there is the joy of the Lord in the midst of suffering. For the Christian, there is the joy of the Lord in the midst of suffering. One way that churches throughout all time have dealt with suffering is by attempting to completely cover it up. It can be very difficult to actually process through the suffering of people both in the congregation and in the world. So instead of dealing with the difficulty of processing suffering, people have just tried to completely cover it up. This most often comes out with simple affirmations of faith, and telling people to trust in God more and he will make it better. Of course, this sounds beneficial on the surface, but oftentimes we can be denying somebody the opportunity to actually process through their suffering. 
without thinking about it, the church has started to hold joy and suffering as two completely opposite things. When in reality, joy and suffering can be two separate feelings that exist at the same time. I want to read to you a quote from uh, the book, Between Pain and Grace, A Biblical Theology of Suffering. I had the pleasure of taking a class uh, called Biblical Theology of Suffering back at Moody, and this book is fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, So if you want a copy, let me know. I can give you my copy. But uh, in the final chapter of this book, uh, in one of the final chapters of this book, about longing to be back in heaven, authors Peterman and Schmutzer have to say this. They say, in our current meta-narrative, the overarching narrative of human life for those of Christian faith, we find two opposing qualities existing side by side. Indeed, they are sometimes mixed together. First, there is death and those things that go along with it, such as suffering, sin, frustration, betrayal, violence, corruption, and groaning. Second, there are blessings of the gospel, new life, redemption, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, adoption, hope, life in God's community, and ongoing transformation. Truly, the Christian life means to exist between two worlds. The old world of sin, alienation and death, and the new world of righteousness, holiness, and life. To put it in simpler terms, as Christians, we need to hold fast the reality that we are currently living in a broken world, but our citizenship rely, remains in heaven, and we will one day be a part of that redeemed world. You see, joy is not an emotion that necessarily has to triumph over suffering. Do you think that the Thessalonians automatically stopped suffering as as soon as Timothy arrived and gave them encouragement that they needed? Or when Timothy brought back to Paul an encouraging report? I, I really wish it was that simple, but honestly, it isn't. Paul says in verse seven that Timothy's encouraging report brought him comfort during his own afflictions. It didn't get rid of those afflictions, but it gave him comfort inside of it. He said that it did not stop his suffering altogether, but instead made it easier. I will be the first person up here to admit that I did once believe that joy and suffering were exact opposites. In my own personal experience in previous churches, I've seen cultures built up around and built up that really do not create a space for those who are in the midst of suffering. They tried to live lives that I could only describe as triumphal, trying to be happy about everything at the expense of the sorrows that this life brings. While this culture may have looked healthy on the surface, after living inside of it for a while, it all felt rehearsed. It all felt like a sham. And when I was experiencing some of the most painful parts of my life, I didn't have a church leader who 
I could go to and really talk about what was happening and really process through the suffering that I was going through. I felt alone in the house of God, which should never be a reality. So what are we to do? How do we avoid falling into that? How how do we avoid falling into that trap? How do we avoid holding suffering and joy as opposites on some non-existent spectrum? Well, in a personal realm, we need to be allowing ourselves and others to experience the deep emotions that sometimes come over us and not just pushing them away or pretending they aren't there. If we are going to understand the true depths of joy and suffering on an intellectual level, we need to experience them on an emotional level as well. Do not pretend that your sadness and your sorrow do not exist. Look at the book of Psalms. It's filled with so many psalms of the psalmist crying out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord for deliverance. For example, Psalm 88, the author brings all of his troubles before God and yet there is no obvious resolution at the end of the psalm. The author sits before God in his sorrow, being okay without an immediate resolution. So church, let me encourage you, do not be afraid to feel those deep emotions and bring it to God. We have a God who listens, a God who we can be honest with about our emotions and our suffering. If we are to hold suffering and joy at the same time, we also need to address suffering in a corporate setting as well. We cannot pretend that suffering does not exist within the walls of this church because it so certainly does. The easiest way for us to address the suffering that is happening in our church is simply come to our prayer meetings on Tuesday night. Through our Tuesday night prayer meetings, we are constantly lifting up the people here inside of this church who are experiencing intense suffering. So, I would encourage you, come out to our Tuesday night meetings and help lift up the people of the church in prayer so we can bring them before the Lord because that is how we should be reacting and addressing suffering in a corporate manner. This is the best way for us to know about the state of other suffering in the church and to give us an opportunity to care for them and bring our requests before our loving God. Finally, the last couple of verses of chapter three say this. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.
In the final bit of chapter three, we see Paul pray a prayer of thanksgiving and intercession for the Thessalonian church. What is amazing about this prayer is that it does two very basic things that help inform the Christian's perception of God. When Paul thanks God, he is remembering what God has done in the past as well as in the present. The act of thanking God helps us come to the reality that God loves us and is concerned for us, being a testimony of exactly who God is. Then he prays for intercession, which furthers the belief that God cares for his people and that he will continue to care for his people in the future. That's why Paul, and also the Christian, prays for other believers, because they, they are both knowing and assuming, as Romans 8.28 says, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That leads me to my final point that I would like to make this evening. For the Christian, there is the strength of the Lord in the midst of our suffering. Despite the intense persecution that the Thessalonians were struggling with, the Lord was able to keep them safe in the midst of their trials. Even as their faith in God was brand new, they were able to rely on him, knowing that this new life that they had embraced was their only way forward. The Lord had been with them long enough that when Timothy had returned to them, they were still full of joy. They were still full of the joy of the Lord in the midst of their suffering. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is then, t- is then thanking God for his provision in the midst of their trials and that God will continue to increase their love for one another and establish their hearts as blameless before the Lord. If it were not for the grace of God alone, we would have all probably abandoned the faith at some point in our lives. Something would have gotten too hard inside of our lives. We would have been too attracted and attached to our sin, or we would have not been able to consolidate Christian truth with something that the world teaches us. But the fact is, we are all sitting here in this church right now with the sole purpose of worshiping God. I know that all of you have faced trials and suffering in your lives, and that's made you want to quit. But it it has never been said that it would be easy being a Christian. But that's why it's so beautiful seeing the faithfulness of our God in the midst of our weaknesses. He strengthens us. When we fail, his spirit moves in us and succeeds. Wouldn't it have been easier for the Thessalonian church to abandon their faith instead of embr- and, and instead just embrace the culture? Absolutely. But the Spirit of God dwelt inside of them and gave them strength in the times of persecution, just as God continues to do now and into the future. It wasn't just this group of believers that God 
has worked through. He continues to do the same work of deliverance that he did back then today. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to remember that redemption that he has given you. He has already started to strengthen you all the way back at your conversion and he is still giving you strength to this very day. So when you pray, remember God's faithfulness to you and ask for his provision into the future because I promise you that he will continue to remain faithful. For Christ himself says that if you ask in faith, it will be given to you. So remember that the Lord has strengthened you and will continue to strengthen you, especially in the midst of your deepest suffering. And finally, this evening, if you do not know Christ, you've probably been thinking about all of these promises that I've been telling you about God to us about the things that Christians can rely on in the midst of their suffering. This evening, I would encourage you to seek out the living God who gives comfort to those in in their trials of life. In the chaos, our God is a firm foundation whom we can rely on, who will strengthen us and hold us fast from the moves of the enemy. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that our relationship could be reconciled to him and so that we could partake in God's own strength. The Lord continues to bless his children for strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow just as we sang a little bit ago. If you do not know Christ, then seek him, for he is the one and sure foundation that we can build our lives upon and trust that we will not be shaken. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your overwhelming love that you have given to us as your children. We thank you that you are constantly watching over us as our Father and that we can rely on you when faced with the turbulence of this world. We know that there is an enemy in this world who wants us to stumble. So tonight we pray that we recognize who our enemy is but not forget what the outcome of the battle will be. Lord, we thank you for your victory. We pray, Lord, for our joy in this church. With your assured victory, we know that we can rely on you even in the midst of our suffering. But sometimes it can be difficult to remember that. So, Lord, we ask that you remind us of your victory and cause our hearts to hope in it. Thank you for the work that you have done, Father, in the past and especially the work that you are doing in the present and into the future. We love you, and in Christ's name we pray, amen.